Arsenal for Democracy is freely available weekly at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple and Stitcher. And we're supported by some listeners at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy for $3 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee, and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. California. New York Island. The Redwood Forest. Gulf Stream Waters. This land was made you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 470, recorded on Sunday, May 14th, 2023. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Idaho, as always, is Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Bill. This week, we're talking about barbed wire. As agriculture entered modernity and grew to industrial scales and production methodologies, it became increasingly important for herders to be able to contain and manage their livestock in large numbers and for crop farmers to protect their crops from livestock and other animals trampling their fields or sneaking a snack. Already, the process of enclosure with walls and fences had been rippling across the world from places like England for a long time. But in the 19th century, farms and herds were going to keep growing to bigger and bigger scales, both in terms of production volumes and geographic areas needing to be enclosed. Moreover, some terrains and climates had different requirements that were harder to fence with traditional materials, which also weren't available everywhere. Therefore, various people in France and the U.S. since at least the beginning of the 1860s had been trying to design something for cheap, mass-produced livestock fencing. And by the early 1870s, there were already some patents that might be considered barbed wire. None of them were particularly successful, either because the design wasn't very effective or they were not efficient to produce at scale, even though generic wire-making mills had been around since the 1500s. Handmade barbed wire might technically be able to contain or deter a wandering cow, but it wasn't going to replace simple tried-and-true wooden fence construction at scale, for example. And that brings us to the 150th anniversary component of this episode, which Rachel is going to explain. However, in May 1873, an Illinois farmer, Henry B. Rose, happened to show off a design, which wasn't actually very good, at a fair in DeKalb. His concept was basically fastening, quote-unquote, metallic points to strips of wood. Local politician, businessman, and farmer Joseph Glidden was at the fair and spotted Rose's exhibit and showed it to hardware dealer Isaac L. Elwood and lumber merchant slash carpenter Jacob Haish. The three of them already had some interest in the idea of mass production livestock fencing, but they figured they could do better than what they were looking at. Glidden and Haish ended up designing and patenting competing concepts within the year, and this resulted in a decades-long legal battle, which Haish ultimately lost. Glidden's design was two strands of stretched-out metal wire wrapped around each other using a twist key, with metal barbs, also cut from wire, looped around one of the wires and held in place by the other wire, such as their such that there were sharp spikes pointing in opposite directions about every inch or two. Haish's design was similar, but featured as the barb a, quote, single piece of wire bent into the form of the letter S, end quote, so that both strands are classed. Elwood had sensibly opted to team up with Glidden immediately. Charles Francis Washburn, an executive of a regular wire manufacturing company, bought out Glidden for the use of his patents, and mass production barbed wire began. 
So let's talk a little bit about the social and economic consequences of barbed wire, although you can obviously see it foreshadowed in our intro about the need for it in the first place. The result of this work was that by the mid-1870s, it was now possible to very inexpensively erect cattle pasture fencing over huge areas of the Great Plains, where soil conditions and lack of forests did not make it cost-effective to build complete wooden fences or to plant hedges. For example, you would have to import wood timber from very long distances, usually bringing it in by railroad or wagon or something like that, and that in incredibly increased the cost, but you were also doing it over a much larger area than, say, a tiny little farm in New England or Pennsylvania or something like that. Now, open range ranchers did not like barbed wire, but more traditional farmers were relatively quick adopters, and this did lead to significant friction and conflict between these factions in these plains regions of the United States. However, Later, some ranchers used barbed wire to try to enclose land tracts, sometimes even illegally if the land was public, and they were doing that against settler smallholders setting up homesteads. By the 1890s, the open-range days were over, and cowboys were largely unneeded to contain and direct herds over long distances. That is the reason that cowboys became a thing and exist for a relatively short period as a major cultural signifier in American history uh, is because there were these long cattle drives where they didn't have any fencing to contain. They were sometimes moving the cattle hundreds of miles, and so you would have laborers, cowboys, riding around on either side of it and behind and in front of the herd, etc., to sort of contain, manage, and direct them. And this goes out the window by the 1890s because of barbed wire. That's why when we talk about the Wild West, so to speak, and the cowboys, you know, being a part of that, that's a pretty short period of time in the United States where that's happening. Barbed wire is most appropriate for containing cows and sheep who don't panic if they bump into it and prick themselves, but it is not appropriate for horses who freak out and hurt themselves. It is also a hazard for many wild animals, especially migratory animals. Sometimes you see birds get caught in barbed wire, unfortunately. And so the coming of barbed wire in the American plains had an effect on a lot of these animals as well. Uh, quoting now from the uh, history.com article about barbed wire, Glidden's was by no means the first barbed wire. He only came up with his design after seeing an exhibit of Henry Rose's single-stranded barbed wire at the DeKalb County Fair. But Glidden's design significantly improved on Rose's by using two strands of wire twisted together to hold the barbed spur wires firmly in place. Glidden's wire also soon proved to be well-suited to mass production techniques, and by 1880, more than 80 million pounds of inexpensive Glidden-style barbed wire was sold, making it the most popular wire in the nation. Prairies and Plains farmers quickly discovered that Glidden's wire was the cheapest, strongest, and most durable way to fence their property. As one fan wrote, quote, it takes no room, exhausts no soil, shades no vegetation, is proof against high winds, makes no snowdrifts, and is both durable and cheap, end quote. So you can see that there were a lot of immediate advantages to this, both from the production side and the implementation and usage side, and that explains why it took off so quickly and so completely. However, remember there's a lot of people involved in this industry, and that's something to bear in mind as well. The article referred to it as Glidden-style barbed wire, and that's because a lot of that had nothing to do with Glidden himself, 
after his uh, initial patenting work. Uh, we already mentioned the fact that he got bought out for the use of his patents in order to start mass production, um, but this does end up going on to be a pretty significant thing with or without him. Uh, and Rachel is going to talk a little bit more about that. Elwood and Washburn would go on to become founders of the American Steel and Wire Company, a firm we discussed in episode 438 from August 2022 in our episode on the rise of mass-produced wire nails in the 1880s and 1890s because it ended up being the near-monopoly producer of wire nails in the U.S. briefly. This company, or at least its antecedent companies that made up the merger, was among the ranks of the steel product makers that found success with the Bessemer process innovation in steel mass production after it started to become widely adopted in the 1870s United States. But the merger of many of these companies became necessary as overproduction and economic recessions kept threatening the viability of smaller firms. American Wire and Steel itself soon folded into U.S. Steel, an even larger mega-merger of five major producers in 1901, and served as its lucrative barbed wire production division, among other things. Uh, John Warren Gates was a barbed wire demonstrator for Washburn, who went rogue and began manufacturing his own bootleg, unlicensed barbed wire out of St. Louis, eventually building quite a large operation. By the end of the 1890s, Gates ended up being part of the acquisition of Washburn and Elwood's operations that led to the formation of American Steel and Wire, and a few years later, U.S. Steel. And finally, Glidden became very rich from royalties from his original buyout deal. So let's talk finally about barbed wire and state power. This is something that is presumably on many of our listeners' minds when the topic of barbed wire comes up. The first use of barbed wire for military functions was by the Portuguese armies in colonial Africa in 1895, followed quickly thereafter by the British Army in the Second Boer War in 1899, including to fence their concentration camps, the first in the world. And then in the Russo-Japanese War in 1904 and 1905 in Manchuria, it was also used. Infamously, of course, it became a signature of the First World War in 1914. It was effective at blocking infantry and cavalry. It was not affected by machine gun fire, but it was cheap enough to be replaced easily after artillery bombardment. Its big weakness was being rolled over by a tank, and that's a big reason why tank warfare becomes uh, a thing toward the end of the war and then subsequent to World War I. The U.S. began using barbed wire for border fencing in 1909, initially just to block cattle from leaving California for Mexico on their own wandering initiative. But after World War I in the 1920s, the U.S. began using barbed wire at the borders for the purpose of blocking people from coming in. Military and border uses have replaced anti-cattle barbed wire, which is relatively easy for people to avoid if they're not in a hurry, with razor wire, which is specifically meant to hurt people who try to touch it or even try to move it. Razor wire is also more intentionally tangled up, whereas quite distinctively barbed wire is stretched taut. That's part of how it works. Uh, and that brings us to the end of our narrative on the history of barbed wire, but let's talk a little bit about some of the things that came up as we were researching this. So, Rachel, what did you learn about barbed wire while we were putting this together? Well, one thing that stuck out to me, uh, quite obviously, was the fact that there was bootleg unlicensed barbed wire. Um, yeah, kind of show me the dark <laughs> the dark wire. Um, so I thought that was kind of funny. Obviously, yeah, because there's patents involved, um, 
there there is such a thing as unlicensed barbed wire, but it it sounds very silly on its face. <laughs> the concept of of bootleg barbed wire. Um, another thing that stood out to me was uh, you mentioned conflicts between farmers and ranchers, um, kind of as as barbed wire came up. But I I would argue that there's still conflicts um, about. Uh, around these concepts and between these factions Um, ranchers and farmers are notoriously um, kind of pitted against each other and also uh, uh, ranchers trying to illegally um, fence off public lands use public lands for private grazing kind of big in the news in the past uh, decade or so Um, there was a whole standoff about it so (laughs) yeah it's, it's it's still very much a a salient um, feature in in the West, even today. Yes, and of course, if you are a musical theater aficionado, you are immediately thinking of the song uh, The Farmer and the Cowman from uh, Oklahoma, and they specifically uh, reference this in the section uh, where someone says, I'd like to say a word for the farmer. Uh, He came out West and made a lot of changes. Someone interjects he came out west and built a lot of fences and someone else rebuts this with and built him right across our cattle ranges and uh this is a song about the conflict in the community between the farmers and ranches ranchers so this is something that was to a lesser extent uh to cowboys was at one point a part of sort of american cultural literacy but of course cowboys uh, are a much more interesting and less mundane and more romanticizable thing than inanimate stretched barbed wire uh, across huge tracts of land. Uh, although, as we can see, the social and economic consequences of this are quite stark. I would also say, to your point about the off-brand barbed wire, the counterfeit black market barbed wire, that to me speaks to, in part, just how huge the demand was. You know, and, and ultimately you end up with arguably too many companies producing. But I think it tells you that kind of like when the streaming companies would start tracking like relative levels of piracy versus what was available on streaming, you know, that by having streaming options where it was legally uh, and easily obtainable relatively inexpensively, people were less likely to pirate materials that had previously been unavailable online. You, I think you can see that in a lot of different things when there's sort of unlicensed counterfeit things is like yeah there this speaks to a huge demand uh, and that they want quality maybe but they definitely want a low price um, and that's partly how that demand gets filled um, and certainly in this time period people were a little bit more loosey-goosey with some of that patent stuff even when uh, that was technically with the, the law um, so obviously this had huge social and economic implications. This continues the sort of process, as alluded to at the beginning of the episode, of this transition from agriculture being something that was done on a relatively small scale to something that is being done uh, on a vast scale with, you know, hundreds of moving pieces and uh, in in the case of livestock, hundreds of moving animals. Uh, in the case of the farms that are potentially being interfered with with the livestock, you're talking about you know enormous tracts of land producing huge volumes of crops and so on. Uh, and 
we've obviously spoken on previous episodes about how in the earlier period there was this move even on southern plantations uh, during the slave era and then certainly in the nominally post-slavery era of the post-civil war period where they were replacing that with convict labor and other sort of sharecropping of coercive methods of getting uh, labor, you see the sort of almost factorization of farm production. And in a lot of ways, the barbed wire is part of the story of how the agriculture sector or industry as a whole, uh, both uh, pastoral and growing agriculture, how those continue to fit themselves into the new emerging second industrial revolution world of the United States. Uh, And as we heard, they were also working on this in France. So that tells you that there was a similar process happening or being explored in, in the French countryside as well during this time period. And then, of course, basically inevitably gets repurposed for explicit social control rather than sort of accidental social control in the form of things like concentration camps and border fences, as well as, of course, using it for uh, military purposes. And you can almost see the same things that were being referenced by that enthusiastic promoter of barbed wire for the use on the Great Plains states uh, for managing cattle or either to keep cattle in or keep cattle out, depending on your perspective. A lot of those things come into effect when it's being deployed for military purposes in World War Run, right? You don't have as much trouble putting it up quickly in the no man's land at night uh, as, you know, it would take to erect a stone wall or a concrete wall or even a wooden fence. Uh, and it's not going to be as difficult to replace if you need to go out there and put up some new ones. Uh, and it's going to be relatively cheap. You can just kind of keep infinitely manufacturing as much as you need of it. Uh, and it's not itself going to be an obstruction in the larger sense. It's going to be an obstruction to infantry and cavalry charges, especially we talked about how horses have challenges with barbed wire, but it's going to be something that, uh, you can get around if you need to, you can like, if you are, not under fire and you have the time you can go and like put a blanket over it or something and and hold it down and climb over it that way so it's it's got some ups and downs to it that are you know are are features (laughs) that can be exploited unfortunately for military purposes in the same way that they were being deployed for originally just controlling uh livestock cattle or keeping uh certain animals out of your crops so any other closing thoughts on this, Rachel? Yeah, I think it's it's kind of fascinating that concept of enclosure kind of had the the side consequence of restricting movement. And then it really became a primary feature um, when using it to to deliberately uh, control the movements of people. Um, and l- yeah, like you said, another big advantage, like it's proof against high winds. A wind wouldn't come and blow down your fencing and so it, you can just kind of set it and forget it and just kind of uh, inspect it every once in a while. But for the most part, you're pretty assured that um, it's going to be there when you come back. So, yeah, it's 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 an interesting concept. And uh, another unfortunate side consequence is um, now we, some of the some people have some of the worst, cheesiest tattoos on their arms. So <laughs> I don't know if uh, Glidden really foresaw that part of it, (laughs) but it's kind of interesting. And I wonder if they're uh, technically accurate uh, 
barbed wire tattoos as well. Well, as we know, the there's twists. lots of different designs of the twists, as we saw between Glidden and Haish and uh, various other people who worked on different designs. So if, you're, if your barbed wire is not technically correct to the winning Glidden design, that's okay. You can just say that you're honoring a different barbed wire manufacturer, <laughs> maybe one of those bootleggers. Exactly. Get the, and get in the, a way, that's the, the most metal thing you can do. Exactly. The the most alternative uh, barbed wire design. <laughs> All right. Well, Rachel, thanks for coming on this week to talk about barbed wire and uh, the 150th anniversary of the work beginning on the final design that kicks off mass produced barbed wire. Uh, glad to be here as always.